This is the Alternate History Show. We revisit the past, change it, and see what happens. Enough said. Hello and welcome to the Alternate History Show once again. It's the eighth episode that we've done. And in it, over the course of the next 90 minutes, we'll discuss Zimbabwe and Rhodesia. Special guest Charlton Cousins knows all there is to know on this subject and he will be guiding us through. In particular, we'll be talking about the 1922 referendum that Southern Rhodesia, as it was then, had to join South Africa or to embark on responsible government. The latter was chosen in reality, but what if they'd chosen the former? How would South Africa have been affected moving forward? And what would it have done to Africa generally? And of course, to Southern Rhodesia. Plus, we'll talk unification in the 1950s. And UDI, of course, in the 60s. We'll talk the run-up to the unilateral declaration of independence. Could the Rhodesian Front have been kept from power? And assuming they win power, could they have been kept from issuing a UDI? What would the consequences be? We'll also discuss the run-up to the Lancaster House meeting. And we'll be asking, could Zimbabwe have avoided Mugabe in the 80s. All that, plus our feedback card later on. Details of a very interesting book that Alex Wallace has been reading for you about uh, China and Hong Kong. And in particular, the handover of control in the 90s from the UK to China and how it could have gone differently. We'll hear about that and much more besides in our feedback card a little bit later on. That's all to come here on the Alternate History Show. And joining me on this edition of the Alternate History Show to talk Zimbabwe and Rhodesia is uh, a guy who's a bit of an expert, really, on it. Charlton Cousins joins me, first time appearing on the programme. Hello, Charlton. Hello, good afternoon. Uh, how are you doing? I'm, I'm well, thank you. Uh, eager to talk about this subject. I've spent the last three years studying it in considerable de- details. I, I think I'm well-placed off a useful commentary on it. So here I am. Why were you interested in uh, Rhodesia in Zimbabwe then? My interest in colonial Southern Africa goes all the way back to my undergrad, 10 years ago now. Okay. When I read a book called The Kaiser's Holocaust. Okay. About the... Um, Imperial German atrocities in what is now Namibia. Yes. And this in turn inspired a wider interest in in South Africa itself, in Southern Rhodesia, Northern Rhodesia. I did my uh, Masters of Arts. My thesis for that was on the Rhodesian Unilateral Declaration of Independence of 1965. Which we will talk about later. Indeed. And I am now in the third and final year of my PhD thesis with the University of Aberdeen, which is examining uh, settler identity in interwar Southern Rhodesia, 1922-1939, primarily relying on newspapers, letters and government reports. A couple of weeks ago, I actually submitted the first draft of my thesis to my um, supervisors to review. So I've actually, there's a whole 
uh, wealth and breadth of knowledge tucked away in my head. Just out of interest as well, before we actually move on to the crux of what we're here to talk about, how did you become interested in alternate history? I ask this of all my uh, guests. Oh, age 16, I'm bald at school, and I discover Happens. alternate history wiki. Oh, okay. The lunch break. Yep. And I get involved in something, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, called the 1983 Doomsday Project. Uh, yes, yes, I know it well. <laughs> I actually wrote some small parts of that. Oh, wow. Which I, yeah, I once had to convince someone that um, a North American survivor state having more helicopters than the pre-war RAF was a bit silly. Since then, I was involved in alternatehistory.com for some years. Yes. And now I'm currently uh, mostly to be found on um, the Sea Lion Press forums. Yeah. All on sufficient velocity. Well, let's talk a little bit about, uh, well, let's start at the very beginning, as they say, in terms of uh, what we're meant to be talking about, uh, which is Rhodesia and uh, Zimbabwe. Let's focus on 1922 and that referendum then to unify with South Africa, really. Have you read the Buxton Report, by the way? Do you know about the Buxton Report very well? I can't say I do. My primary source base regarding the 1922 referendum is by people on the ground in southern Rhodesia itself. Yeah. Uh, and in South Africa, and also letters from a certain Winston Churchill, who was colonial secretary at the time. Yes, yes. So I wonder what happened to him. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. He kind of disappears into history. I know, I know. <laughs> a young Winston Churchill and his correspondence with and regarding uh, Jan Smuts, Prime Minister of South Africa at the time. Yeah. And... It's it's you a whole host of different peoples and factors and factorums at play. Apart from, of course, the black African majority. So 1922, the referendum happened. It was pretty overwhelming, I'd say, the result to do the uh, the responsible government uh, set up, mm-hmm. um, which was perhaps a bit surprising, given uh, that the uh, British government, the Dominion Office, were uh, pushing for unity with South Africa. So given the lopsided results um, that we know in reality, is it possible to get a union with South Africa officially voted on in this referendum and how do you go about it? I would say yes but the South African socio-economic and political scene needs to be a lot calmer when you read the primary sources there's this quote that um, South Africa was just uh, rocked by rebellion in recent years they're talking about the Rand Rebellion which happened just before the referendum. Mm. There was the uprising in World War One, the Boer uprising against South African involvement in the First World War. And, of course, there was the legacy of the Second Boer War, where uh, Southern Rhodesian forces were deployed alongside other yeah. imperial forces. Which would and be very much in living memory at the time. Definitely, it very much was. Mm. And a lot, and you read the primary sources and the newspapers, and like speeches where people were given, and you get the sense that South Africa, white Afrikaners in South Africa, were perceived as being disloyal and hostile mm. to um, British imperial interests, but also white British settler interests in Southern Africa. This even was with Jan Smuts in charge of South Africa, and Jan Smuts was an Anglophile, or at least a pro-imperialist Afrikaner, although he had fought against us in the Boer Wars. Yes. So for 
unification to happen, I think you would need a stabler political scene in South Africa, a stabler economic scene for Africana nationalists to be less prominent. And also, I think, for women in Southern Rhodesia not to have the franchise yet. Women overwhelmingly in Southern Rhodesia voted for a responsible government. That's true. Why was that exactly, do you know? Well, a lot of the rhetoric that you get, because there were there was a women's association for responsible government. The, the rhetoric is like, combines like ideas of motherhood with ideals of like imperial unity. Okay. And so white British women in Rhodesia would be continuing the empire. Like the colony was a child of the empire. And so there, there's, there's almost kind of um ideological connection between personal motherhood and imperial motherhood and this idea of like uh, raising white British children in southern Rhodesia in kind of like a loyalist family of white nations if that makes sense yeah as opposed to South Africa which was seen as tumultuous backwards there's this idea of progressivism hmm with nothing to do with modern, like, liberal progressivism. No, 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 It's kind of hard to describe, really, like, going forward to this white British future, which Africa and South Africa was perceived to be hostile towards. You say that begs the question, how on earth do you get that to happen, given what was going on in the rest of the world? Of course, you had the representation of the People Act in the UK. So if the so-called mother country, if you like, is going ahead and giving the votes to women, it's going to look a bit bad if the responsible government referendum is not on a similar platform at least the franchise in southern Indonesia is a fascinating and complicated subject in itself because mm. on the one hand it was never explicitly racialized mm. now in, in the entire period of sort of even up to and beyond UDI it was never explicitly racialized but of course it implicitly very much was so yes it was a wealth franchise but de facto Although not to Jorvay, you do read about like a handful of non-white voters in 1922 and beyond. Yeah. I think there were like a um, hundred of them. No one gives you exact sources, but like the newspapers and stuff talk about it. Mm. And so the enfranchisement of white women was part and parcel of the white Southern Rhodesians community's attempts to legitimise itself as a self-governing community. The way they set up their franchise was to differentiate themselves from, like, the Africana franchise, if that makes sense, which was much more explicitly racialist. Mm, yeah. Particularly in 1922, when talk Southern Asian politicians and public commentators, as it were, mm. are, like, proud of the fact that they have a non-racialized franchise. Yeah. Except, of course, it is racialized. They just pretend it isn't. Yes. The sense you get is that you're allowed to have deliberately discriminatory policies in the British Empire so long as you don't mention it as long as you've got like the Fred Barest excuse they're not discriminatory what happens if the uh, union with South Africa does get the go ahead what happens in South Africa firstly as well firstly the Afrikaner nationalists are going to be weakened okay because you've now got a large Anglophone and Anglophile population joining into the north mm. South Africa's ex influence will be extended northwards into northern Rhodesia, into Katanga, particularly in the Belgian Congo. The Belgian Congo was not a settler colony because the environment was not suited to it. Yeah. But in comparatively speaking, Katanga was more suitable mm. and that was the area of the heavy, heaviest European settlement. Yeah. 
And you see similar political movements develop in that part of the Belgian Congo that develop in Southern Rhodesia and South Africa. You see uh, white demands for self-governments, white trade unionism, the colour bar. They all happen in Katanga as well. Smuts's big dream uh, was for a United States of white Southern Africa. Mm. Um, Britons, Afrikaners, Belgians, Portuguese all living in harmony atop everyone else which yeah is is a, a, a utopian dream in some ways but of course it falls down on reality as well doesn't it so yeah, um, yeah. dan smuts is a fascinating man because he was a visionary in some respects but just massively blinkered in others it was only at like the end of his life and 1948 and that particular election, that Smuts really started to have any sort of consideration to the fact that uh, black, Indian, and uh, coloured, mixed race, yeah. uh, Africans had their own dreams and aspirations. By which time you got the 1948 yeah. election and all that came with it and after it. You might not have had apartheid with Savadija in um, South Africa, but mm. segregation was already there and segregation would have continued. Maybe not like the creation of Bantu stands, but you would, I think, still have continued seg- and increasing segregation in land, employment, education. You just wouldn't have had that, like, sort of separatist part that apartheid added to it yeah one thing people don't quite realize about apartheid it wasn't just segregation it was the fact that black south africans weren't south africans anymore yeah they were they were shunted off into the bantu stands they were now citizens of the independent bantu stands mm. that was the extra step it would have been different in degrees rather than distinct in any major terms mm. but I think the major distinction would have been in South Africa this expanded South Africa's relationship to the wider world. Okay. Because a part of the Afrikaner nationalist project, apart from apartheid at home, was republicanism and a distinct hatred of the British Empire mm. for various historical reasons. Yeah. And so it would have tried not to have as contentious a relationship to the rest of the Commonwealth slash Empire after World War Two. Yeah. Whether it would have succeeded or not, I think, is unlikely, because, you know, India would have still been hostile and so on and so forth. Mm. Basically, to summarise, no apartheid, but it will still be pretty up and down. This is what sort of gets me about no apartheid as well. Without apartheid, uh, does the unofficial, separate but equal style racism carry on for longer? One of the ideological tricks, as it were, the architects of apartheid, people like Verbo and so forth, Mm. conducted was to try to erase the history of white liberalism in Southern Africa. One of my most interesting figures in South African interwar history is Jan Hofmeier. Yes. And he accurately pointed out in several ta- publicly in speeches he gave in the 20s and 30s that as more and more non-white South Africans got education, mm. they would inevitably demand the rights that went along with that education. Yes. And he said South Africa either had to give these people rights and include them in our system Mm. or they would inevitably become revolutionaries and he was right in the long run I think a South Africa which is segregationist but not apartheidist might actually have to deal with that issue sooner particularly in places like the Cape where no apartheid might mean a continued even although albeit 
tiny uh, enfranchised uh, black mixed race Asian population. Mm. Limiting the franchise and disenfranchisement predates the Union of South Africa. Sure, sure. And goes back to Cecil Rhodes. Yes. Because the idea of white unity atop uh, non-white disenfranchisement, that was Rhodes' thing. I think if Cecil Rhodes had fallen down a well at some point before he got to South Africa, the the history of the place would be a lot better. (laughs) Interesting speculate what would have came of the likes of Verwood and um, Ian Smith and the like, should they actually go into politics in this scenario. Every primary source I've read out Ian Smith, there was a very sort of very provisional. I don't think he quite understood that it was not 1925 anymore, it was 1965. But I think he quite realised the world had changed. Mm. Like, the moment he issued UDI, a third of the Rhodesian Air Force's um, Hawker Hunters were in Britain for maintenance. Wow, yeah. And we just confiscated them. I guess if, if we're talking about UDI now, there's a great quote from Garfield Todd. Okay. And Garfield Todd was a reformer. Maybe not a liberal, but more liberal. Yes, liberal by those standards. Yes, um, for instance, one of his daring reforms was allowing uh, African men to sign their names as Mr. in government documents. Whoa. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, beforehand, they had to sign them as AM, African male. He tried to expand the franchise uh, a little bit, but it it went through. Mm. But I think after he was forced out, basically, by his own party, but before UDI, he gave a speech saying that white Southern Rhodesians were in danger of becoming a nation of neurotics. Right. Um, terrified of the world. And, like, the fact that this beautiful country of all these resources, surely they could find it within themselves to, like, share it a little bit? Well, we'll touch a little bit more on UDI a little bit later on. First off, I want to uh, focus a little bit more, actually, on the uh, North and South Rhodesian um, Union, the short-lived union. Um, I think this was yeah, the project. The Federation yeah, this was the Rhodesian. project of uh, Godfrey Huggins, wasn't it? Yes. So the post-war federation was basically Britain. Britain, of course, was strapped for money after World War Two. Of course, and was seeking to like limit its colonial expenditure, and so basically developed research-rich northern Rhodesia would be matched to the capital and systems of southern Rhodesia, and Nyasaland was just sort of thrown in as an afterthought because no one else knew what to do with it. Nyasaland slash modern Malawi is a beautiful country, Mm. but it's isolated and kind of out of the way. Yes. So that's the post-war. And under Federation, the Southern Rhodesian system was not extended to Northern Rhodesia and Southern and Nyasaland. Mm. But under Amalgamation, which didn't, as far as I can tell, Nyasaland might have been included under Amalgamation, but they didn't really want it to be. Yeah. Under Amalgamation, Northern Rhodesia would cease to exist and the southern Rhodesian system its uh, political system its social system and its economic system including segregation of land and employment and so forth would extend northwards mm. and um Godfrey Huggins was really big on this because he felt that it would solidify white British control over that part of Africa yeah he likened it to Australia in 1900 didn't he pretty much 
yes, it was very much the sort of white British people, wherever they are, deserve self-government, and we should unite because of that. Mm. Uh, two issues meant that this never took off. The first was that North Rhodesia had white settlement. Yeah. But, but whereas Southern Rhodesia at its peak was about 10% of the population and South Africa's was about 15% at its peak, mm. uh, North Rhodesia's never exceeded 1%. And related to that was, was that the colonial office had direct, much more direct control over and interactions with indigenous peoples in North Rhodesia. Mm. And through various means, those indigenous people made their opposition to amalgamation very apparent. Yeah. And, of course, the direct rule thing was sort of the reason for the amalgamation in some ways. So you've got a bit of a circle going on. Yeah, I think it's important to clarify this point that the colonial administration of Northern Rhodesia was racist and it was discriminatory. Mm-hmm. It, but it was in a paternalistic system rather than a settler segregationist system yeah. it's it's uh, perhaps and it might not seem to us now but this it was important to both the indigenous people at the time one major example of instance was that southern Rhodesia had a pass law system for listeners who don't know that meant uh black africans had to carry passes to or at all times to show that they could be where they were basically yes uh, just another humiliating aspect of uh, segregation. But these pass laws didn't exist in Northern Rhodesia. All the accounts, like whenever like the indigenous black Africans of Northern Rhodesia made their opposition to amalgamation known, the pass laws were always mentioned as a humiliating and degrading thing. Mm. As was the colour bar in employment. It's a miracle that they thought it would work in the first place in a way, but that said... Could it have worked with tweaking, do you think? Could it have lasted at least the medium term? Firstly, in the post-war federation, the Southern Rhodesian system was not extended northwards. Mm. That's an important point to keep in mind. In Southern Rhodesia, uh, World War II meant industrialisation. Yeah. And post-war meant heavy white settlement. Yeah. Northern Rhodesia, it marks the beginning of a powerful and politically conscious black African trade union movement. And so you end up after World War Two with Northern Rhodesia and Southern Rhodesia on divergent paths. Yeah. Even they weren't particularly on convergent paths to start with. To start with, um, regarding settlement and governments and economics, but they start to diverge more and more heavily after World War Two. I think it's important to consider that there was a lot of propaganda in World War II about the fight for freedom and all that. Yeah. And this happened in Africa as well. There was, in fact, a Namibian nationalist. He was put on trial for some made-up nonsense in a part of South Africa. Yeah. And he said, I fought in World War II against tyranny whilst the government that now rules South Africa sought to support it. Ultimately, Federation was trying to reconcile the irreconcilable. I think if Godfrey Huggins had succeeded in increasing the franchise, it might have lasted. But this sort of like parallel white-black development Federation couldn't last in the form it was. Mm. 
if Federation were to survive, it would have to inevitably involve increasing black African participation in social, economic and political life. Which would have been difficult at that point politically with certain members of uh, Northern Rhodesia um, in particular. The nature of politics in this in colonial Southern Africa meant that where liberal white voices existed, like uh, Garfield Todd in Southern Rhodesia, like um, Jan Hofmeyer in South Africa, or Adolf Milan in the post, um, Sailor Milan, the fighter pilot, yeah. in post, or Helen Zuzman, they existed, but minority rule systems are surprisingly easy to maintain against internal dissent, if that makes sense. Mm. Because there's, there's so much buying into them. The Southern Rhodesian system fell, and the South African system fell, not because external pressure basically became so great that it destroyed internal cohesion. Mm. The benefits that apartheid in South Africa and UDI brought to white Southern Rhodesians became destroyed by the costs, if that makes sense. Yes, yes. In Southern Rhodesia, by the end, by the late 70s, after the Portuguese colonial empire fell, fell and after South Africa started cutting off support and concentrating on its own affairs, Southern Rhodesia basically sort of resembled downfall on the veldt. Yeah. Like, like uh, white Southern Rhodesian control didn't really extend past where the guns were pointing. And Ian Smith was just hiding in Salisbury trying to figure out any sort of solution that would keep white power intact. Mm. Of course, there wasn't any. You're listening to the Alternate History Show with myself, Ben Kearns, and special guest Charlton Cousins, talking all about Zimbabwe and Rhodesia. We'll be back in part two of the programme, in part two. You'll be hearing about the road to UDI. Could that have gone differently? What about post-UDI? Could there have even been British military intervention? All those questions we'll attempt to answer next. The Alternate History Show with Ben Kearns in association with AlternateHistory.com, the world's premier alternate history discussion site. Let's focus then on the road to UDI now. The road to UDI, sort of the uh, mid-60s. Post-breakup uh, of the Federation, is there any way of keeping the Rhodesian front from uh, not winning the election and not being in the position to declare UDI? It's going to be difficult. Mm. Particularly uh, with events in South Africa being yeah. what they were. When I mentioned that Barfield Todd comment about the nation of neur- neurotics came up, white Rhodesians were really fearful of what happened in the Congo. Mm. The Congo crisis being repeated in Southern Rhodesia. I don't think it would have been for various reasons. But th- there was this petty bourgeoisie panic going on. Mm in Southern Rhodesia, which was the same sort of class fear that produced fascism in Europe. They were so desperate to cling on to what they had that, that they squeezed the country into crisis of that, to perhaps twist the metaphor slightly. Yeah. So you end up with an increasing cycle of white radicalisation and black resistance. And what's remarkable about the rise of the Rhodesia vote and the Rhodesian front in power is the way in which, much like in South, in South Africa, in fact, white dissent was silenced and, and limited by the government. Famously, entire pages of the Rhodesia Herald were just blanked out by censors. Mm. 
with thick black marker pen put across them. It was quite a shock, actually, when the Rhodesian front won, wasn't it, to some people? I think quite a few people didn't realise the extent of white Rhodesian anger. And I don't think many people outside of Southern Rhodesia realised just how committed the majority of white Southern Rhodesians were to their system. White Southern Rhodesia was the only, the second British settler colony to issue a UDI against Britain, at least in that said. The first, of course, was the United States of America. The UDI was deliberately um, said to be similar to the US declaration. Again, you read out the talks between Wilson and Smith pre-UDI. Yeah. And you really get the sense of these two men inhabiting entirely different worlds. I think Smith cared more about it, or at least cared more about maintaining the system than Wilson did about and he, I think Wilson wanted to cut Britain's losses but not in a way that pissed off the other parts of the, the new Commonwealth. The Labour Party on the whole, the Labour Party base were against uh, yeah. UDI as well, of course. So you ended up with, again, this ever-increasing ever sort of fortress mentality on most of the Asian front, which is not healthy politically, like in terms of diplomacy or internal politics for that matter. Initially, Ian Smith wasn't the leader of the um, RF, was he? No. Um, um, what would have happened had Winston Field remained in place or someone else? I think you might have just generally seen just kind of like a running sore, a stasis. UDI allowed Britain to basically cut Southern Rhodesia loose. I think Britain's position in the rest of Africa would have been complicated. Yeah. I think there might have been growing pressure within the Labour Party and in the rest of Africa for some sort of military intervention. I think the Conservative Party in Britain would have made great hay of it. It all comes down to the fact that Southern Rhodesia was an annoyance to Britain, but it was not our main foreign policy concern in the 1960s. No, no. You sort of had the Warsaw Pact to worry about and other bits and bits. The 14th Shock Army in Eastern Germany, as I I think, bit more of a major concern, which, again, is something I don't think the Rhodesians quite realised. White Southern Rhodesians, that is. Mm. Uh, By this point, of course, uh, Southern Rhodesians were just calling themselves Rhodesians. Yes. Uh, North Rhodesia, of course, became Zimbabwe, um, Zambia. Yes. Uh, but officially, it remained Southern Rhodesia until 1980. Mm. And uh, Zimbabwe became, I think. Yes. So, yes. ultimately, I think there's been a lot more meetings. It just becomes like a long-running embarrassment. I think, ultimately speaking, white intransigent would have inspired increasing amounts of black resistance, and that would have inspired white reaction. It would have eventually have spiralled out of control. You might be aware of this great quote from Alexei de Tocqueville, that um, a government is in most danger when it tries to reform. There's a corollary to that, is that a government is in most danger when it tries to react. And push against reform, perhaps, as well. Exactly, yes. Perhaps if Ian Smith hadn't become leader, things might have improved, but the entire point of the Rhodesian point was no, no reform, no movement. Yeah. So it's difficult, really, if even Ian Smith had uh, been seen to be dragging his feet, someone else would have come in as well. Yeah, that's the point. I'm currently writing actually a thing on the SLP forums about the nationalists losing the 1948 election in South Africa. Ah, okay. 
and it's basically about the triumph of liberalism in South Africa rather than the triumph of conservatism. Interesting. And one thing that becomes very clear is just how the more the world changed in after World War II and from 1948 on, the more white reactionaries across Southern Africa in Southern Asia and South Africa in Northern Asia and as far as I can tell, uh, the Portuguese colonies became more determined to hold on to it. Maybe if South Africa had gone United Party rather than Nationalist in 48, things might have slowly started changing for the better. Yes. But then, of course, you've still got the Portuguese and Angola and Mozambique. There are multiple parts of Southern Africa where, for similar but distinct states, resistance to segregation and colonialism could break out into revolution. And once it starts somewhere, it will spread. Yes. The borders of states and of these colonies and states were porous. I mean, to a degree, we saw that in, uh, well, most recently in the uh, Arab Spring, of course. Yes, exactly. World, um, and, of, and how ISIS travels across borders. You might have seen, of course, in the news recently, uh, ISIS is, is in Mozambique, in northern Mozambique. Yeah. And they've taken over towns and cities there. No UGI there's a chance for reform and no violence mm. but the issue becomes that once violence starts a white reactionary backlash is actually more likely yes and it just spirals out of control it would take someone of tremendous courage to stand up to say actually the solution to black guerrillas running around is actually to like liberalize and negotiate them it would have taken even more skill to actually pull it off is there such a Rhodesian politician who could have done that? Garfield Todd, maybe, on a good day? He'd have to have lots and lots of good days then, basically. Yeah, one thing that becomes very clear is that the forces of reaction in Southern Rhodesia and South Africa only had to win once. Mm. Because then they could set the entire apparatus of state to supporting a reaction. Yeah. Let's focus in the 1964 by changing the players in the UK as well. I mean, what if it was very close? What if Alec Douglas Hoon and the Conservatives pull through in the election? What would the state of play in Indonesia with a UDI and the like be in that eventuality? The Conservatives, of course, it had been a Conservative Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan, who had given the Windows of Change speech. Yes. The issue is, of course, that the new Commonwealth states, India, Nigeria, etc., would have all and did oppose, like, Britain attempting to compromise with white southern Asians. Mm. But it also comes back to there were conservative backbenchers, um, I think the Monday Club, Enoch Powell was amongst their number, of course yes, he was, yes. um, who saw what they felt as an attempt to sell out what they said were our kith and kin. Uh, white Southern Rhodesians. Human Smith, I think it would have been less concentrational than Wilson and Smith. Yeah. But I, I think there wouldn't have been any progress made, if only because I don't think Hume would have been as pressured by his own backbenchers. Yeah. But I think this actually has really negative in, uh, consequences for Britain's relationship with the rest of the new Commonwealth. As things develop in Northern Ireland and stuff, and across the world, and in Vietnam as well. Yeah. I think you might end up with a situation whereby every few years or so, Britain just has to put out a formal apology saying, we're trying to negotiate with the white Southern Asians, but we've got more important things to be doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what they would have said. I think white Southern Asians wouldn't have issued a UDI under these circumstances because I don't think they would have needed to. I think as the situation develops and as the fire of revolution, I think, inevitably spreads... 
across that part of the world. I think Britain's diplomatic position in Africa would become very complicated very quickly. Yes. And I think if, say, UDI is delayed by, like, five years or so, maybe a different Labour leader comes in in... Maybe Jim Callaghan in 1970 or something. Yeah. I think there's actually more chance then of Britain deploying troops. Okay. To fight UDI. Mm. Or maybe the entire region just, once the Portuguese revolution happens in 1975, then things get really complicated. (laughs) And of Uh, course, yeah, it's very interesting because, of course, in the UK, um, by that point, by by 1964, had been under Conservative rule for 13 years. So at some point, Labour are going to get in sooner rather than later, aren't they? And then you're going to get UDI in some way, shape or form. Is that what you're saying? Pretty much, yes. Uh, the particular circumstances would change things. Mm. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, Southern Rhodesia was not like ready for UDI. Mm. They hadn't like brought all their airplanes back from Britain. They hadn't transferred bank accounts from London to Salisbury. A UDI that happens later, with Britain perhaps distracted by Northern Ireland, puts white Southern Rhodesians in a better position. Also, their preparations would be noticeable. So I think it also might, again, it all comes back to, does Southern Rhodesia visibly preparing to rebel against Britain, which is what it was? Yeah. Does this inspire Britain, therefore, like in 1970, to send the powers in? Mm. Well, we should talk a little bit more about that in a minute, actually, after I ask another question about Wilson being elected. Uh, With Harold Wilson in office, is there any way of preventing or uh, significantly delaying UDI past 1965? Again, possibly, but he was under tremendous pressure to actually get the Southern Rhodesians to come to the table. Mm. I think I've read about Harold Wilson was that he was not a man who liked being embarrassed. And Southern Rhodesia was an embarrassment, both domestically and internationally. So he would have had to know of it sooner rather than later. Harold Wilson was not a man given to foreign adventurism. It's why we didn't send troops to Vietnam, for mm. instance. Yes, much to Lyndon Johnson's chagrin. Yeah, he said he would have been very happy if we could have just sent the band of the Grenadier Guards. Yeah. Maybe he could have put it off. Mm. But one thing that also strikes me in reading about the negotiations between Smith and Wilson pre-UDI was just how much Smith got under Wilson's skin. Smith had been a fighter pilot in World War Two. Yes. And Wilson hadn't said. I think there was definitely an element that Smith looked down upon Wilson. Mm as his political, moral, ideological inferior. The rupture, I think, could have been perhaps delayed if they just hadn't spoken to each other as much. <laughs> if, they just, if they just interacted through the um, intermediate, intermediaries. Through the Foreign Secretary, maybe, but that, that might not have worked either particularly well, given who was but, Foreign Secretary at the time. Yeah, um, and of course, Wilson would have faced... Um, pressure from his own cabinet people like Barbara Castle, Roy Jenkins Yes. so there were multiple push and pull factors on Harold Wilson getting him to act when he did what Smith basically had to do politically to stay in power in Southern Indonesia was a lot easier than what Harold Wilson had to do to stay in power in Britain Yeah. all Smith had to do was keep on saying no mm. Uh, saying no is easy. Yeah. And again, it all comes back to how, how I think how small the Southern Rhodesian enfranchised population was. Mm. 
and because of the nature of that franchise, just how not completely cohesive, but part of the grand bargain of increasing segregation in South Africa and Southern Asia was that white laborism and white trade unionism would be inter... I'm not a Marxist, but Marxist class analysis can be particularly useful in um, in certain areas, is that white class conflict would be replaced by white versus black racial conflict Mm -hmm. if it wasn't uh, explicitly uh, phrased as such. Yeah. So ultimately... Yes, it could have been delayed at least a little bit, mm. but pressure at home and abroad from various sources would have forced Wilson to confront Smith, and Smith's intransigence would have... Um, as it did, but just a bit yeah. later. Mm-hmm. Maybe on Armistice Day 1966 at a push then, basically. Yeah, the fact that um, UDI was um, issued on Armistice Day really pissed off Howard Wilson. Yes, yes. He felt it was deeply insulting, just like to both Britain and himself. Smith intended it to be like, oh, we've actually fought with Britain in the past, you should remember that, but he didn't really come across that way. Mm. He sort of uh, crafted that letter to the Queen as well, didn't he? Like, this is not about you, Mum. It's about Harold Wilson and the socialists, the nasty socialists, that kind of stuff, didn't he? Which, again, speaks to the worldview that Smith was operating, because mm. talking about like loyalty to the monarchy and loyalty to the idea of Britain was very... 1920s Southern Rhodesian white rhetoric. Mm. The way I've talked about my thesis is, is that white Southern Rhodesian identity was a trifecta of factors. You had cultural Britishness, yeah, racialised whiteness, and political imperial loyalty, mm. which were all, they were shifting, but they were mutually reinforcing. Yes. <laughs> but by the 60s, the empire was falling away. Yes. And white Southern Rhodesians ultimately had to choose, I don't think they would have quite phased it as such, but this was basically what it was, between remaining cultural and political connections to Britain and their identity as whites. Yeah. And they chose the racialised identity. Mm. I mean, is there any way that they could have chosen the former, even at that late stage? It might sound overly deterministic when we talk about alternate history, but the big point of change for Southern Africa, and it's important to talk about Southern Africa as a whole here. Yeah. Because the politics and the development in all the states of the region are interlinked, mm. come earlier. Mm. Like, I, I would say the, for the best outcome for Southern Rhodesia by 1965 to occur needs to happen before 1900. Mm. And the closer you get to 1948 in South Africa or 1965 in Southern Asia, the harder it is to avoid a bad outcome. Yeah. Because the chain of events that led to those bad outcome has already been set in motion. And breaking the chain would have been very difficult, mm. reversing it even more so. We touched upon this a little while ago, the idea of uh, British military intervention post-UDI. My guess is that there would have been some sort of attempt at negotiation anyway before any military response was even considered, especially given Wilson's propensity for not intervening militarily, but even with a sort of more interventionist government there would have been some sort of attempt at negotiation beforehand even after UDI the problem was was that Britain basically ruled out military intervention from the start Mm. 
And so when negotiations happened after UDR, which they did the um, Tiger talks, I think they were, the fearless talks, Yes, Smith always had the, the card that Britain, like, even if worse comes to worse, Britain wasn't going to send him to the troops. If there had been a Royal Marine Commando helicopter group off Mozambique and the Portuguese somehow let us through, mm. the negotiations might have gone slightly differently. Barbara Castle, I think, might have been more willing to do it, for example. Yeah. But that all comes back to the slightly worrying possibility that the British military would have refused to do it, mm. which was a genuine worry. Well, yeah. well, not so much mutiny, it's just the general sense I get from reading government report cabinet papers from 1965 was that the commanders of the forces that would have been deployed, which would have been the powers and the Marines, yeah. and the SAS, and the RAF, would have been deeply reluctant to do it. Mm. They probably would have done it, but it would have been very sad or very farcical mm. on both ends. And very messy either way. Exactly, yes. An important point to consider is that by 1965, um, the Rhodesian army, had, uh, under the Federation, the Rhodesian military had expanded. Mm. Uh, quite a lot, both against internal threats and also in opposition to apartheid South Africa. Yeah. And for instance, the Rhodesian regiment, the Rhodesian regiment was like the old regiment of Rhodesia was a white Anglophone regiment. Yeah. But the Rhodesian light infantry was a white Africana regiment of the mostly um, actually composed of Africana South Rhodesians. And while the general sense was was that while the Rhodesia Regiment and the Rhodesian Native Regiment, as it was called, wouldn't fight a British landing. If the Parachute Regiment was jumping into Salisbury Airport, the um, Rhodesian Light Infantry would have fought back. Yeah. And also, the, the issue becomes where to base them from. Zambia, maybe, but even getting to Zambia would be difficult. A military response to UDI was, I think, sort of technically possible... Someone else might have reached for it, but implementing it would have been fraught with risks, both logistic, military, and domestically at home in Britain. Keeps on getting more and more interesting, this topic, doesn't it, as we progress through the decade? It is the Alternate History Show. You've been listening to part two. Part three is coming up when you want it. And in the third part of this episode, we discuss the 1970s in Rhodesia. Could they have progressed notably? differently and what would that have done in the run-up to the Lancaster House Agreement? Could Mugabe's rule have been avoided? And did Zimbabwe need a Mandela figure to really work? We'll answer all those questions or I'll ask them and Charlton will attempt to answer them. That's coming up in part three plus the very latest alternate history news. Alex Wallace joining me for that in the Feedback Hub. That's all in this episode of the Alternate History Show. It's history with a twist. You're listening to the Alternate History Show with Ben Kearns. What about the 1970s? What if Wilson had actually remained Prime Minister in the 1970s? And the sort of uh, uh, uneasy antagonism between Wilson and Smith had continued past 1970 through to 1974. By that point, the conflict in some of the had become internationalised. Mm. 
there was a famous I think it might have been in the Carter administration or might have been probably there was an there was an act in America that was passed that required the US government to import chromium from non communist states before they imported it from communist states. And suddenly, Rhodesia was a major exporter of chromium. It probably won't surprise you that this chromium law was um, supported and passed and backed by this white southern Dixiecrat. Yes. And a lot of right wing forces in America who previously supported Jim Crow. Mm. Now supported Southern Rhodesia. Yeah. You actually ended up with a Ku Klux Klan chapter in Southern Rhodesia. Yeah. Well, I think and Barry Goldwater as well, himself not perfectly aligned, did say some complimentary things about Ian Smith and the UDI. The more the Bush War, as it were, dragged on and stuff, the more mm. Britain was like the main point of contact Southern Rhodesia had with the Western world. Yeah. But the, the, the conflict there assumed ideological connotations in light of the Cold War. Mugabe's group was supported by the Chinese. Basically, the, the Chinese and the Soviets uh, supported opposite groups. And you had Encomo as well. Who, by the way, was actually a Georgist, economically speaking. A fascinating thing in of itself. Mm. It all comes back to, like, as the Soviet Union with, like, Britain's domestic issues and stuff. I think Britain de- deploying troops or, like, seeking a military intervention in the 1970s would have been even more difficult what with the ongoing problems in Northern Ireland. Yeah. And, of course, there were ideological connections between loyalist and pro-unionist political figures in Britain and Northern Ireland and in Rhodesia. Throughout the 60s and 70s in Western Europe and beyond, there was a sort of right-wing colonial factor, as it were. Mm. You had the um, Algiers putsch, attempted putsch. Yes. France. You had, what was it, um, George Wallace and Curtis LeMay in America. Yeah. Greece was another hot spot as well at some point. Wasn't Greece, the Colonel's coup in the yes, 70s, exactly. Yes, yeah. If Britain handled Southern Rhodesia particularly poorly in the 60s and 70s, mm. it could have nasty repercussions in Britain internally. Yeah. And of course, there's always been those rumours and stories about plots and coups against Wilson. Yes. Mountbatten was said to be approached and that kind of stuff. Yes, and he famously thought it was nonsense, called it as such. Yeah. The Algiers Putsch was inspired by um, de Gaulle ending French presence there, and you had types like David Sterling running around Britain, and he wasn't even the worst of them. Mm. So I think an interesting, if slightly bleak AH, might be an increasingly frustrated Wilson in the 1970s finding assaults to military force. But he, by this point, he's actually lost control of the military to the extent, or at least the military's fed up with him enough they refuse to move <laughs> on southern Asia. And then suddenly the elected British government can't actually command its armed forces anymore. Oh, you thought the winter of discontent was bad. (laughs) Yeah, the army's not mutinying, it's just not moving when it's told to, which is almost as bad. Maybe a right-wing, like a centrist Tory government in the 70s could have handled UDI with military force without the risk. Mm. Sort of like a British version of only Nixon could go to China. But then it would have to be a right-wing, a sort of centre-right government with a fairly hefty majority, wouldn't it, really? Perhaps pressured by the Liberals. Mm. Or maybe some weird AH, a Liberal majority in the 70s would have done it. Mm. Like the, the terrifying possibility of Prime Minister Jeremy Thorpe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which would have been... Um, Interesting. Yeah, yeah, for for many reasons. Yes. Um, 
Transformative, I think, would be a good word to use to describe that possibility. (laughs) It's worth bearing in mind that to put pressure on Southern Rhodesia, you had to put pressure on Portugal, which was a NATO member. And so difficult. Yeah. And you also had to put pressure on South Africa, which, you know, independent, wealthy state, also difficult. The sanctions that Britain automatically imposed after UDI, like confiscating the jet engines, seizing the bank accounts and stuff, only really started to bite once the international situation in Southern Africa changed, particularly the Portuguese revolution. Mm. And what I was going to ask you about next, what would have happened had that not occurred, had there been no Portuguese revolution? You would have seen basically a zone of conflict mm. from Angola through Southern Indonesia to Mozambique and states to their north becoming more militarised. Mm. Again, the spiral into chaos would have been a major factor. Yes. Particularly as the Soviets in the 70s, you probably know, the Soviets under Brezhnev were getting more involved in Africa and Asia. Yeah. Uh, specifically Soviet naval deployments. Mm. It would have been very internationally difficult with like the end of Jim Crow in America but still like powerful right-wing forces as the struggle for racial justice and liberation in Africa in South Africa becomes even more inexorably tied into the wider Cold War and like Portugal still a member of NATO but NATO is not obliged to intervene in Southern Africa but on the other hand they're still a member of NATO so we've still got to supply them with equipment you could see Southern Africa become a hot point in the Cold War and mm. uh, having like implications particularly on American domestic policy now Jim Crow's ended are we just going to support the new Jim Crow the new new Jim Crow in South Southern Africa mm. I want to push ahead to uh, the uh, Lancaster House agreement and surrounding events mm-hmm. is there any way that uh, Rhodesia could have become Rhodesia Zimbabwe without kindly uncle Bob Mugabe becoming Prime Minister at that point, and all that came with it. My take on Mugabe and all he did was that he is very much a product of the Rhodesian system. Mm. Not that that excuses him or justifies all the awful evil he has committed, Mm. but I've always felt that revolutions reflect the societies that produce them. And I think it's a militaristic police state, which Rhodesia was by the end, Producing a militaristic authoritarian new leader who is a black African is not that surprising. Mm. I think if the internal settlement of 1979 that produced Zimbabwe, Rhodesia, had happened in 1965, Zimbabwe today, or whatever you want to call it, would have been a lot better place. Mm. But ultimately, the thing that Smith, the whole point of the Smith regime and the Rhodesian front was not to do that, it was to slam the brakes and everything. Mm. And what's remarkable about Southern Rhodesia after Lancaster House and after the transition to majority rule or Mugabean rule, whatever you want to call it, was the way in which whites, now whites and Barbians, unlike white South Africans after 1994, withdrew from the economic and political process. Mm. To this day, um, the white South African population has shrunk. Yeah. Not as much as the white Zimbabwean one, but that's because that white South Africans have actually worked in large parts to become equal citizens of the new South Africa. What's that saying about um, Edward Heath that he just threw a tantrum on the back benches? (laughs) Now white Zimbabweans basically did the same thing. Southern Rhodesia was in chaos by 1979, Mm. as I mentioned earlier. Yeah. As a result of the Rhodesia Front and the cycles of violence and reaction, 
avoiding someone like Mugabe is possible. Mm. I think someone like Nkomo would have been a better leader. Yeah. Personally. But I think it's also one of the things that Mugabe, initially when he was in power, focused his attention on black African domestic enemies. Mm. And he was very careful to be chummy to the West. Mm. And he did invest heavily in education and stuff. Mm. And there is early Mugabe was a kind of like South Asian developmentalist authoritarian, Mm. if that makes sense. But I think it's instructive that the unaccountable policing, the use of torture, the suppression of the press, these were not new. Mugabe did not introduce these to to Zimbabwe. Mm. He must be held accountable for not stopping them. It was common across post-colonial Africa for the tools of colonial oppression to become the tools of post-colonial oppression. I've heard it said that uh, in terms of the formation of uh, Zimbabwe, whatever they wanted to be called, you needed a Mandela figure, really, uh, rather than Mugabe at all all costs. Um, Is that true? Did they need a Mandela? And is it possible to get a Mandela of Rhodesia, Zimbabwe? Well, I think he's a bodge of consider that when he first came into the power in 1980, Mugabe had Mandela's reputation. Mm. And he had it for a while. Until Mugabe went after the white farmers, he had a positive like reputation in the West. One thing that you read about Mandela is, is that like, he understood the Afrikaners. Yeah. He spoke Afrikaans, a video of him speaking Afrikaans. He got their worldview. I think, again, going back to the white Zimbabwean withdrawal from political life, mm. I think, on the one hand, Mugabe didn't care about white Zimbabweans, and white Zimbabweans didn't care about Zimbabwe. In modern South Africa, both the ANC and the Democratic Alliance are cross-racial. Yeah. Uh, The Democratic Alliance is more white, kind of, but both the ANC and DA have white, black, Asian members. The white population was a lot more united. The divisions between the Mdible and the um, Shona in Southern Rhodesia, that is, were more pronounced than tribal divisions in South Africa. Yeah. But even there, of course, you you had and had things like the Ithaca Freedom Party. So the circumstances that produced Mandela were unique. Mm. And I think it's worth bearing in mind that up until F.W. Clark started announcing the process of reform and liberalisation that led to the end of apartheid, the negotiated end of apartheid, I don't think anyone would have expected it to end as well as it did. Yeah. There were airliners being shot down over Rhodesia. The countryside was on fire. Mm. It was getting bad in South Africa, but it wasn't quite that bad yeah. yet. If it had been, I don't think Mandela would be the leader he could become. He probably would have tried. I, I, he was a, I think Mandela was a much more fundamentally decent humanist person than Mugabe ever was. Yeah. Perhaps Zimbabwe could have had a Mandela. Mm. But Mandela, I don't think, could have had Zimbabwe, if that makes sense. If the process to Lancaster House had started in 1970, yeah. rather than towards the end of the decade, possibly it could have happened. It was only towards the very end of the conflict, the Bush Wars, it was called, that Smith even tried to compromise, Yeah. let alone reform entirely. Mm. I think that's deadly because I think F.W. Clark was actually quite a bit smarter than Smith was. And, of course, he saw what happened to mm-hmm. Ian Smith as well, so he had uh, hindsight on his yeah. side to a degree as well. Mm-hmm. And, of course, things moved on uh, significantly 
in the yeah, late eighties as well. The end of the Cold War helped in South Africa's mm. case. Yeah. Because the fears of mass property confiscations and such went away. Mandela ended up fitting very well into the context that he had helped himself create. It's instructive to point out, again, Mugabe's faction in Rhodesia or, and then Zimbabwe, they're like their first targets were other black Africans. Mm. And, even, and like the level of inter-black nationalist violence in Zimbabwe far exceeded violence between the ANC and IFP in South Africa. Mugabe's faction in Rhodesia or, and then Zimbabwe, they're like their first targets were other black Africans. The level of inter-black nationalist violence in, in Zimbabwe far exceeded violence between the ANC and IFP in South Africa. You're listening to the Autumn History Show. Ben with you for another ooh, 15 minutes or so, 15, 20 minutes. And it's around about this time on every episode uh, that we like to delve into the murky world of alternate history generally and uh, look at what's going on, what is happening, what we've been doing from an AH perspective. And joining me to do that is our regular contributor, Alex Wallace. Hello. Hello, Ben. Pleasure to be here as always. It's a pleasure to have you here as always as well. So, I mean, what have you been up to over the past uh, month or so? Now, last time we spoke, you were uh, talking a little bit about the El Sprague de Camp Awards. Yeah, those uh, those have come out. Uh, I regret to say I haven't read too much. I don't think I've read them yet because I've been busy with the, with the job and with reading physical books, so... Fortunately, I can I can only give so many comments on that, and that isn't much at all. Uh, in terms of other things, uh, this is going to sound really self-indulgent, but go on. Uh, uh, one of my vignettes was put on the Sealand Press blog. My story, Iron Shot or Golden Sandal, the the winner for the January Sealand Press vignette competition. All right, so what else have you been up to? Um, everything ticking over, I take it, in terms of the uh, Facebook uh, Alternate History Online uh, page. Uh, Facebook has been the usual. In terms of what I've been reading, uh, the, the big thing that stood out to me in terms of Alternate History is... And this is more honorary alternate history. Uh, HUL's a short story, The Land Ironclads. Oh, right, yeah. Which he basically predicts tanks. You've been reading a lot of H.G. Wells, I think, since our War of the Worlds episode last year. Yeah, I'm doing a H.G. Wells series. I've been doing a bet, uh, doing a series on H.G. Wells for one of the other sites I write for, Warped Factor. Oh, right. And that's been going on since late February. Okay. And my most recent one was the Land Ironclads. One for that was the Camford Visitation, which is his fuming satire of uh, British university life in the early 20th century. What else have you been up to then? What else have you been doing from an AH perspective? I've been trying to read more of the Sea Lion Press vignettes in, oh, the, right, yeah. in, the, in their writing section. There's yeah. been a couple of really good ones. Uh, there's... Uh, Senator Chickpeas, uh, the name of God is God Himself, which I really liked. Uh, it's a that's an intriguing name, and that's worth reading for the name itself. I think absolutely, it's set in uh, early 20th century Russia during an apocalypse. Mm. 
Very bleak stuff, but very interesting stuff. Very interesting. We will uh, endeavour to take a look at that. Um, I've been looking at some stuff to do with the Great Reform Act, evidently, um, in uh, 1832 over here in the UK. That's why I've been uh, reading up on at the moment, uh, partly for uh, an alternate history episode, which I'm going to be doing in the month's time about the Hanoverians, which I will talk a little bit more about later. Um, but, uh, yeah, we were, I was looking up uh, the 1832 Great Reform Act, and there's a uh, timeline evidently on that, a story on that, on the Great Reform Act. Very interesting, and uh, basically it doesn't get passed, and it's uh, it makes for an interesting modern day world, let's just put it that way. So that's uh, very uh, Is this uh, Mr. Anderson's uh, The Unreformed Kingdom? Yes, yes, yes. I have read that. You've read that? Yes. That's all good. Very good. It, it, it's a very good book, very strange. Uh, there is an app on your phone you can use to watch hangings, Actually, which I think puts yeah. it in a very stark relief, everything that's happened in this world. It's a chilling thought, really, isn't it? But there you go. You've had some reactions as well to our uh, Israeli-Palestinian episode of the Alternate History Show that we did uh, last month, haven't you, as well? Uh, I mean, I think it turned out well. Yep. Uh, I tried to be as infuriatingly nonpartisan as I could. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I... And in terms of my future stuff, I'm working on a article for the Sea Lion Press blog that should be out in a week or two that takes a lot from the, the research I did for that episode. Mm. And it's about the state of Israel as a utopian project. Yeah. And how that did and didn't play out. I've been uh, having a conversation with someone who did get in contact with you, evidently, about the uh, Israeli-Palestinian episode, and uh, we're planning something in the very near future, in uh, sort of July-August time. Uh, we're hopefully going to do something on uh, interesting, mo interestingly Mormonism. Um, oh, he got back to you. Yeah, yeah. This is very interesting, actually, because I was uh, I was saying to you actually um, a couple of days, a couple of weeks back, I think it was. I was looking up Mormonism. I think it was the on the anniversary of the founding of the church for something completely different, and I remember thinking this has the workings of actually quite a good alternate history at some point. Um, you can actually do something with this and you, well, there, there are a lot of sort of religious points of departure that you could do perhaps with a slightly underrepresented as well which we might endeavour to do in the uh, coming months and years. Of my not very good knowledge of the history of Mormonism there is most certainly old in history fodder there. If you read about the Mormon church in the 19th century you can kind of see why Harry Turtledove chose them to be the, the the terrorists in the Southern Victory series. Yes. It's fascinating to think about what could have happened and uh, the role they could have played in uh, other alternate histories, uh, which perhaps don't get explored enough, uh, maybe with uh, alternate Mormon churches uh, officially established as well, and um, alternate careers, say, for Joseph Smith and cohorts. And we were thinking as well, we were saying, actually, in conversation, it's a bit of an obscure topic, or something like that and it got me thinking about the most obscure sort of point of departure which leads to well radically different changes uh, because I was uh, I mentioned as well a timeline that I sketched um, years and years ago 
uh, with a point of departure in the mid-1990s at a BBC radio station, which ended up preventing 9-11 in 2001. I think it was 2011, 2012 time, something like that. I did that timeline, and it got me thinking that's uh, quite a small small departure initially, leading to large consequences. Leading on from that, Alex, what would you say your favourite small, seemingly insignificant point of departure in a uh, an alternate history novel or a story you've read is off top of my head in a Kim Stanley Robinson short story, uh, the Lucky Strike. Ah, there's one one of the the, the pilots yeah. on the uh, plane that's going to drop the atomic bomb in Japan just refuses to do it. That mm. uh, that led to a very interesting story. Alex, um, curious aside here as well. Um, that I was wondering earlier on. Just very, very strange, because it happened to me, um, not last night, but the night before, actually. Have you ever dreamt about being in an AH? Or part of an alternate history, if that makes sense? Uh, I don't think so, none that I can uh. remember. Uh, my dreams tend to be surreal hellscapes <laughs> that no one understands. Okay. And so it's never coherent enough that's to an alternate history. That's an alternate history. That's, that's an alternate history in itself, then, I suppose. <laughs> I guess. But, uh, yeah, no, I was uh, stuck somewhere in the 18th century uh, a couple of nights back. It was fun. Alex, let's hear your pick of the week, please. Pick of the week. On the Sea Lion P- Press Forum, in this writing section, there's a short story written by a guy named Left Side Lock, who... <laughs> Again, worth checking out for the name. And this short story is called Goodnight Hong Kong, which is ah. set in a world where the handover to the, from the British to Chinese goes differently. Right. And it is quite the well-done story. Ah, I may have to look at that, because that is something I've uh, been meaning to brush up on a lot more in the uh, future, particularly given uh, what's happened around that part, that, around that neck of the Absolutely. woods over the, past, uh, over the past year or so. I have uh, often wondered... Uh, how that could have played out differently, um, especially given the sort of benign uh, geopolitical times that it happened during as well. I've been reading up on a story, actually. It's an also history I've uh, been coming back to um, a few times, actually. Uh, it basically circles around the idea of the Fifth Republic forming differently. I don't know all that much about French history, um but uh, I'm, I'm brushing up on it and this is helping, so that's all good. I might have to look into doing a bit more on that at some point in the future. I mean, if you want a good book on modern French history, Jonathan Fenby wrote a very good book on modern France that I would recommend. The History of Modern France from 2015. The History of Modern France. Okay, well, we'll check it out. It's nice and straightforward. So that's a, yes. always good, always good. Alex, thank you very much for joining us uh, for today mm-hmm. for the Feedback Hub. We'll come back to you, of course, uh, on our episode, on our next episode. Uh, anything else that you would like to add to the party before we head off? Uh, just just one more thing that's occurred to me yep. since the uh, episode started. Uh, I watched uh, an alternate history anime film a couple about a month ago called... Steam Boy. It's directed by uh, Katsuhiro Otomo, the guy who directed uh, uh, Akira, and okay. it's actually pretty good. 
very it's just steampunk Britain, which I thought was very well realized. Well, you can't go wrong with a bit of old-fashioned British steampunk, can you really? All right, that is it for the feedback cup for today, and indeed for the program as a whole for this month. Coming up in June, we'll be having fun and hilarity with the Hanoverians. That's right, as I alluded to earlier on, we'll be discussing the UK in the 18th and 19th centuries from George the First right through to Queen Victoria. It'll be 90 minutes of fun. Trust me, it really will. They always provide good alternate history fodder. Uh, don't forget, we're available for your correspondence whenever you want us. In the meantime, as well, both myself and Alex are on various alternate history platforms, whether it be on the alternate history online page on Facebook. We're also available on the Alternate Timelines forum, the alternatehistory.com forums as well, Sea Lion Press forums, and of course, on sufficient velocity to boot. So many ways of getting hold of us between now and June. If you have any ideas about previous episodes that we've done, any feedback would be welcome, and any ideas for future episodes to come. Meantime, only remains for me to say stay safe, but more importantly, stay happy and enjoy your AH.